Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. He's been here. been there. Magic down the middle, just what I thought. A hook shot at 12. Good! He's been everywhere. Shot from there and a save and a rebound. Score! Yes! Kings win the cup! Sobel. That's one small step for man. Ted Sobel. One giant leap for man. The man, the myth, the legend. What the hell's going on out here? Now, one-on-one with Ted Sobel. Hi, I'm Herm Edwards, head coach from ASU. You're listening to Touching Greatness with Ted Sobel. Thank you, Coach Edwards, and welcome back, everybody, to Touching Greatness. I've been on hiatus for a little bit as I continue to finish the writing of my first book called Touching Greatness. Yes, the same name as our podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network. My guest this week is Coach Bill Curry, who played 10 seasons in the National Football League, a two-time Pro Bowl center, three-time NFL champ, including Super Bowls one and five for the Packers and the Baltimore Colts. Bill Curry, also the head coach at Alabama for three years, seven years at the University of Kentucky, and seven years at Georgia Tech, where he played for Coach Bobby Dodd. And Bill finished his coaching stint with five years at Georgia State. He's a fascinating guy, including a renowned public speaker, and I'm excited to talk to the man who not only snapped the ball to Bart Starr during the great years of the Packers, but also played for the great Vince Lombardi. And let's get right to my chat with Coach Bill Curry. Coach Curry, how are you, sir? Great. How are you, Ted? I am wonderful. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted. Thank you. Absolutely. I was thinking of calling you 15 minutes earlier on Lombardi time, but I thought that would be very rude. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's incredible. Uh, I I go a lot of places, and uh, invariably, Lombardi time comes up, and I was asked about it specifically the other day. I can't remember where I was, but uh, five minutes earlier, 10 minutes late. it never goes away. That's funny. I'm a little surprised to hear that because it was so long ago. It's nice to know people remember that. Well, I was with a bunch of high school kids the other day, just as a just as an exercise to kind of see because um, I was talking about Lombardi, and yep. I stopped and said, "How many of you know who Vince Lombardi is? Every single one of them, major boys and girls. I'm talking about eighth, ninth, tenth graders. Wow! Um, it shocked me because of I can stand up and talk about Johnny Unitas and John Mackey and Willie Davis. They have no idea. Yep. Um, it's the same thing here. I, I spoke in front of a class uh, about a week ago, and I brought up John Wooden, and I think two people in the whole room knew who he was. And I'm in L.A. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, that's just there's something about the Lombardi name. I think... And, and somebody uh, quickly answered, well, you know why it is. It's because of the Super Bowl. That's true. And the trophy is the Lombardi trophy. That's so a good that's, point. That's a big part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Coach Curry, it is really a wonderful opportunity to speak with you because I've admired your work over the years. And you didn't even know it. <laughs> I'm friends with Bart Starr and his family, and to know that you were at his tribute at Lambeau Field a few weeks back was special to hear about. It was um, really it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before, and um, and richly deserved. Um, I'm not sure I could even describe it, but it went on for three days, and uh, 
Uh, nobody ever deserved to be recognized in such a loving, affectionate way uh, ever, in my experience, uh, than Bart. And to have Cherry there, um, and his wife Cherry, who, who cared for him hand and foot the last five years, and uh, you can look at her and see the toll it took on her, to have her there um, celebrating his life with all the many, many thousands of people who adored him, that was, it was really um, almost indescribable. I'm sure it was. It's funny, I use the word, I'm writing a book called Touching Greatness, I'm going to mention a few stories about Bart in it. Uh, it's a word that's not used very often, wholesome. Doesn't that really describe Bart Starr as a person? I am so biased that uh, I may not be a good person to ask. Okay. But uh, I would say that's, uh, he, he, if you look up wholesome in the dictionary, his pictures probably. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next to it. I mean, he adopted me the first, literally the first 10 minutes I was on the campus at St. Norbert College as the last draft choice of the Green Bay Packers, and he never left my side uh, until until his death this year, and uh, I'm 77 now, and uh, he was 85, yeah. so I just, um, I, uh, there's, it was unbelievable how kind and charitable he was off the field. On the field, it was unbelievable how tough he was. Sort of a guy who could flip a switch, which is rare in all of life, let alone uh, in the NFL. Yeah, I think we all um, can flip switches, but I'm not sure we flip them at the appropriate times. Yes. <laughs> they get flipped. They're flipped by somebody else. Somebody, <laughs> I, 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 think, I haven't used this metaphor before, but you brought it up. I think the best way to describe art, uh, using that context, is that nobody else could flip the switch. He had to flip it. And if he flipped it now, I've seen him turn it on Lombardi, and I've seen him turn it on me when I was being a jerk. <laughs> it, can be, <laughs> it can be devastating. Tell the people out there who weren't around back in the 60s about Bart being the winningest quarterback to this day in the history of the game. When you are 9-1 and one in the postseason, it is a totally forgotten stat, and it should be like in neon lights. It's Lombardi's um, greatest achievement, I think, and um, Bart started all of those games to be 9-1 and one in the playoffs, and there weren't, weren't as many playoff games yep. in those days, obviously, as there are now. Although, there were a couple of years there when there were ties, and then when I was with the Packers, we ended up playing the Colts in an extra a game because we, we had uh, gone head-to-head and, and tied in the regular season, but... Um, that was an uncanny, incredible achievement and of consistency when the whole world's watching and the chips are down and there are no excuses and the loser goes home. And it's true that in those days, Bart really called his plays, didn't he? Called every play. Um, there was never a, a play sent in. And uh, with Unitas, there would be an occasional play sent in by Don Shula or uh, the offensive coordinator, which Unitas would ignore. <laughs> but but they, they never sent plays into Bart. He just called them all. And uh, I think that was a dimension of the game that um, that really added a, 
a richness that that we don't have today with the with the uh, headsets and the uh, communication through modern means inside the headgears. That almost takes something away from the teaching and the communication aspect. It really shows, though, what kind of a leader Bart was on the field as well, though, because when you're calling the plays, I mean, you're in charge of everything, and the guys have to respect you in the huddle. They have to respect you. They have to listen to you. And um, and, and in those days, there was a huddle. Um, <laughs> That's true. And I've, I've sort of made a career of talking about the huddle and why it is such a sacred thing to me and why it means so much to American culture because you can't get in a huddle and be a racist you can't get in a huddle and be a sexist you can't get in a huddle and hate somebody because they're from another country or have another religion because that's your teammate Uh, and even though we may not huddle on the field as much we still huddle when, when we come together when the chips are down and Bart was always the leader of that element that togetherness and the symbol of stability when he's sticking his head in the huddle and looking in the eye you just had the sense that you would kill yourself before you let him down i'm wondering what would bill curry's life have been if there was no bart star wow i never had to think about that i'm sorry to bring that up (laughs) yeah i um I reported to the Packers, as I mentioned. I was two weeks late to training camp because of something called the College All-Star Game. Sure. These days. We had played the world champion, believe it or not, Cleveland Browns the night before in wow. Chicago. Yeah. I had flown into um, Green Bay and gone to DePere, Wisconsin, where the training camp was held at uh, St. Norbert College. And I'm walking to dinner, and suddenly realized there was somebody quietly walking beside me. And I turned and almost passed out because it was Bart Starr. And I said, Mr. Starr, <laughs> hello. He said, hi, Bill. Um, I'm, I said, well, he said, don't, don't use that Mr. stuff. It's just Bart. And welcome to the Green Bay Packers. Um, the first words he ever spoke to me after that were, I don't know uh, about your faith, but we have a wonderful minister at our Methodist church, and if you'd like, you can go to church with Cherry and me and the boys tomorrow morning and come eat Sunday dinner with us. First thing out of it, he didn't ask me. We didn't talk about the snap count. We didn't talk about picking up blitzes. We didn't, <laughs> it was just simply pure down-home hospitality. And it blew me away, and I stayed in that state of wonder over all the years that I spent around him, with him, and uh, and then in the last few years, trying to uh, just pray for him and hope that he he would come through this thing that he, he had to deal with his health issues. Tell the folks how big was Bart Starr at the time when you met him, because it was one of the ultimate uh, all-time great athletes. Well, it was 1965, and the Packers had won the world title and had lost that the, the one playoff loss that was on uh, Bart's record and Lombardi's record was to the Eagles in 1960. Mm-hmm. They won the championship against uh, the Giants in 61 and 62 in what was then the world championship game. It wasn't called Super Bowl. 
and this was 1965. Uh, so they had come in second a couple of years, which just frosted Lombardi. Um, but um, they were already being called the greatest team in the history of football. And some people call them the greatest team in the history of sport. And then they proceeded to win the whole thing three more years in a row, 65, 66, 67. So <laughs> to say they were pretty good would be an understatement and uh, just dominated um, dominated sports conversation and all the superlatives and um, all the great players that they had that eventually became Hall of Famers and some great ones that will never be in the Hall of Fame because I think the voters uh, think there are too many Packers in there already. Uh, that's my opinion about why some people are not in there who probably should be. Yeah. There's not too many. If they're all that great, you deserve to be in. <laughs> that's another story. Vince Lombardi, I've had wonderful chats with Bart, with Max McGee, with Fuzzy Thurston, your old teammates, about Vince and what he meant to them. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. We're talking about a guy here who molded character among his players like no other coach ever. Well, I didn't like him. I, I, I was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from College Park, Georgia. Um, and we've been raised to not like a lot of people. And not by my parents. My parents were loving, decent people. But our culture taught us to dislike Yankees and Catholics wow. and um, people and, and Italians. Uh, and he was all of those. We were also not supposed to like people of color. We also bragged a lot about being non-judgmental, as in the Christian faith. And we're the most judgmental bunch of people that ever lived in the history of the world. I didn't learn that until I became a grown-up, but and then, I, and then I was ashamed. But um, I just thought Lombardi did everything wrong. He used profanity, he screamed and yelled a lot. And I went to Bart one day. This is a he really enjoyed <laughs> this part of. I said, hey, Bart, you know, I'm really. So everybody says Coach Lombardi's so devout. Well, he screams and yells and he uses profanity. Somebody said he goes to church every day. I said, there's no way this guy goes to church. There's no way this guy's a Christian. Bar said, he, he uh, reprimanded me. He said, don't you dare be judgmental of anybody. It was my first taste of his, of the real fiber huh. of Bar. So he said, and besides, Coach Lombardi is very devout. He does go to Mass every single morning. You know, by the way, when you've been working for this guy about three weeks, you're going to realize this man needs to go to church every day. But you don't need to be judging him. And um, and so there was, a, there was a real tug there because I thought he was abusive. I thought he um, asked too much of us. And uh, later when I was playing for Don Shula, I said so. And I said so publicly. So that years later when Coach Lombardi was on his deathbed, uh, one of my teammates, Bob Long, called me one day and he said, I know you're in Washington. I was working for the Players Association mm -hmm. at the time. And um, Coach Lombardi was in the hospital. And Bob said, you and I are going to go see Coach Lombardi, light a candle for him, and you're going to have a conversation with him. And I said, no, we're not, <laughs> because he wouldn't let me in the room. Wow. Uh, Maria, his wife. The one I was really afraid to see was Marie, his wonderful wife. Oh. 
who had basically adopted Carolyn and me, my wife, and treated us like her own, the two years we were with the Packers. And I was embarrassed by the whole thing, and I was feeling really terrible about the things I had said because some of them just weren't true. Uh, I was just bitter and angry because he had put me on the expansion list. Yep. So uh, Bob said uh, in his kind and uh, uh, <laughs> gentle way, I know where you are, and if I have to drag your big you-know-what out of that <laughs> hotel room, I'm going, you're going to the hospital with me. So I didn't have a choice. We um, arrived at the room. Marie hugged me, which made me feel even worse. Escorted me into the room. Uh, kind of nudged me up toward the bed. Um, Coach's right arm was full of IVs, so I took his left hand and I muttered and stumbled and about to weep through it all. Coach, I um, <clears throat> said some things I shouldn't have said and I came here to apologize. But I also came here to tell you that you've meant a lot to my life. And he didn't, he didn't waver. Those eyes were just like they had always been even though the body was emaciated, and he squeezed my hand, and he said, well, you can mean a lot to my life if you'll pray for me. Hmm. And I promised that I would. So what did the great man do? Um, he forgave me when I least deserved it, and that's what the Christian faith is supposed to be all about. And that, that fact was not lost on me. Uh, so in his final hours, he faced what he had to face, in a way that I pray that I can face when it's my turn to do that. I pray that I can forgive those who least deserve it. He certainly did that for me, and it was another life-changing experience. So, yes, your suggestion that he changed lives uh, is absolutely factual. Fascinating, though, that uh, yours was done in a totally different way, and certainly yeah. uh, on his deathbed, literally, just the fact that uh, it meant that much to you to be able to say it really changed your thinking, didn't it, forever after that? Changed everything. Because I mean, here he was, a Catholic. He was, a, yes, he was from the North. Yes, he had a, a Brooklyn accident and, and uh, all those things. <laughs> wow. And yes, he yelled and uh, all the things that I thought were inappropriate. Uh, what he was doing is forcing us to grow up when we were perhaps weren't prepared. I certainly wasn't ready to grow up when I played for him, and I, I've just thought a million times selfishly I'd give anything if I could have played for him when I was a grown man. I would have loved that. I'm wondering what it was like. Uh, did he call you when they put you on the expansion draft, or was this something where it was just somebody else and you were on your way out? No, real leaders do business face-to-face, -face, and he couldn't walk in my house, but he called me personally. He said, I'll never forget the words. He said, Bill, I've got some sad news. Uh, you know, this expansion thing, I had to put you on the expansion list, and the New Orleans Saints have claimed you, and I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that powerful voice and the fact that he did it himself, and which just confirms that he was everything that uh, we had thought that he was. Because of the expansion draft, you knew it was coming. Did you feel that it was realistic you were going to go, or was it just all timing? 
I'm not sure I thought about much of anything. I'm a 22-year-old idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe I was maybe I was 23 or 20 by that time. But right. um, I, I had just been the starter in the Super Bowl, and I didn't think, and, and still wasn't being, by the way, it wasn't being called the Super Bowl until yes. Super Bowl three. It was, it was still being called the NFL versus AFL World Championship game. But be that as it may, I just figured that I would not be one of the guys that was chosen. And I thought even if he put me on the list, they probably wouldn't pick me, but they did. And then they were so excited about me, they immediately traded me to the Baltimore Colts. Yes. <laughs> and um, a couple of weeks later, I got this phone call from another of the greatest coaches of all time, um, a, a voice purporting to be Don Shula. And I figured it was a buddy of mine <laughs> screwing around with me. He said, uh, Bill, this is Don Shula. I almost shot my mouth off and said something stupid. But I decided, maybe I better find out. Let's just play along and see if it really is <laughs> the man. Well, it was. And when I realized that it, that who it was, he said, the reason I'm calling is because we're, we're considering a trade for you. But I want to know, I know you've been a starter, but we like the way you play special teams. And if we bring you to Baltimore, would you be okay with playing special teams? And Shula was the first head coach that really emphasized special teams uh -huh. that I'm aware of in the NFL. And I said, Coach, you can put me anywhere you want to. I will walk to Baltimore to play for you. That's great. So that's how that happened. And that great coach changed my life again by giving me one chance after another. Um, and I'm eternally indebted to Don Shula for that. Wow, Bill Curry, you've played for and hiked the ball to so many greats. I mean, how amazing is it? You played for Lombardi and Shula and Bobby Dodd in college, and you snapped the ball to Unitas and Star. Who else did you snap the ball to? You really want to hear it? Sure. Um, when I was in the eighth grade, uh, they started assigning us. I didn't even like football. I didn't even watch football. There I was, <laughs> stuck on a football field in College Park, Georgia. Hated every minute of it. I would have quit in a heartbeat, except that I had a problem with the quitting because my father lived at our house. You <laughs> didn't quit anything at the Curry house for Major W.A. Curry. Thank God for so, Mr. Curry. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so... They were assigning positions, and there were only 11 new guys. And after they'd assigned 10 positions, all the, the good positions were taken by the more skilled athletes. There was only one left, and there was only one. I was short, fat, and lazy. And um, all I wanted to do in the world was pitch for the Yankees. I lived to pitch a baseball. I couldn't understand why, if I could stand 60 feet, 6 inches from you and throw something at you, why in the world would I want to run into you and risk <laughs> injuring my little puffy body? I couldn't. I mean, I didn't like anything about it. Huh. Least of all, and nobody wanted to play center. So uh, the assistant coach said, "Well, Bill, I guess you're going to be the center." And I was going, "I talk." Well, no kidding. It's only one position left. So I walk over, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm reduced to the indignity of leaning over and pulling this oblate steroid up between my legs. I said, "You want me to?" <laughs> pop the ball up here, and Tommy Fields is going to put his hands where? I don't want his hands there. 
And by the way, what if he moves his hands early? And all this stuff's <laughs> running through your mind. But I, now, by now, my buddies were watching. They were laughing at me. So I didn't have any choice. So I had to learn to hike a ball. Worst thing that could have happened for short, fat, lazy Bill Curry. <laughs> Two years later, I learned to hike that ball to Billy Lockridge at Georgia Tech, hiking trophy runner-up. In the senior bowl, after my senior year at Tech, I learned to hike that ball to Joe Willie Naiman. And a few months later, I learned to hike that ball to Roger Staubach and John Hewitt and Bob Timberlake and Craig Morton. And a week after that, I learned to hike that ball to Bob Starr and Zeke Bratkowski. And three years later, I learned to hike that ball to John Unitas and Earl Morrill. And later, in various situations on various teams, I learned to hike that ball to Bob Greasy, Dan Pastorini, James Harris, Daryl LaMonica, Lynn Dawson, the greatest leaders and players in the history of our sport. And I had the privilege of conveying the football to them and then being their personal protector for 20 years of my life. And by the way, it's the only position in all of sport that would have allowed for Bill Curry with my meager athletic ability to have had a career. So that which appears to be the worst in life very often turns out to be the best. Wow, you should have gone to Notre Dame with that luck of the Irish. <laughs> well, I would have afraid of the first. I didn't get a chance to go to Notre Dame. I bet. By the way, I was just thinking about why you said it, Coach. Uh, here you told me before how you were brought up in your neighborhood not to like the Yankees of the North, yet you wanted a pitch for the Yankees. I think that's fascinating. Well, this fascinating. What happened at our house was a little thing called television. We got this little screen when I was 10 years old that had rabbit ears. You yes. had to put uh, tinfoil on it to make it function. And the first thing I saw was Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford and Elston Howard. And the next year, Mantle was a rookie, and I was hooked forever. Uh, with the mystique, and I still wear Yankee hats around. My wife says, "What do you got that thing on for?" <laughs> I don't even I don't even follow the Yankees anymore. But it was a it was a dream I had to try to go to the top and be the best at something. And even though it didn't uh, work out for my primary dream, it worked out rather well with something else. With the same principles applied, just working your butt off and trying to be the best you can be. Bill Curry, uh, the fact that I'm in Los Angeles, I've always been fascinated by Super Bowl One. My father had tickets to the game, and he decided, well, we're not going to go. It's probably not going to be much of a game anyway. And that was the whole mystique around Lombardi that uh, Max McGee stressed to me big time. He said, I have never seen Vince this nervous, this stressed out about any game, because if he loses that game, the whole league is embarrassed. What do you remember about that situation? I remember him. Uh, I remember exactly what Max remembers. Uh, I remember him coming to the um, team the day before the game, and he told us, I'm getting phone calls from Wellington Mara and Pete Bozell. Yep. We cannot lose this game. And um, he said, um, I, you, you all know the rules about being in and, and uh, following our training rules, but I'm going to tell you what the rules are now. It's not going to be a $100 fine. It's going to be a $2,500 fine. <laughs> you'll never, and I'll, let me tell you this too. Everybody, pay, you listen to me, you will never play another town in the National Football League if, you don't, if you're not on time for curfew tonight. 
So I was in my room at <laughs> 6 o'clock. <laughs> but Max was not. I'm sure he told you that. No, he was there at 6. It was 6 a.m., not 6 p.m. Yeah, 6 a.m., that's right. <laughs> Bart, and nobody believed that story. We all thought Max had made it up, and Bart said, no, nah, I saw him coming in. Because Bart went downstairs at 6.30 to get a newspaper. <laughs> Here comes Max straggling in because he, he knew it was his last game anyhow. And then he was, he really, Bart swears Mark, uh, Max should have been the most valuable player in the proper service. Talking to Max, he once said to me, he goes, hey, he's the Bart, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah, well, and as long as Max is okay with it, then the rest of us were too. But what a what a beautiful soul that guy was. And we had some a bunch of real characters, but he was the ringleader of the characters. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, he, he told me that when he came into the hotel, he actually walked right past Lombardi, who just pretended like he didn't see him, but he saw him. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, only, only Max would have gotten away with it. Only Max. Exactly. And it's funny, too, because the, the public at the time was that uh, Lombardi hated him, but they actually were buddies, and they played cards together all the time. So uh, he respected him because he knew he was giving his all, and that's all that Lombardi cared about. Well, at some level, I'm, and I, I'm, I'm probably going overboard with this, but I think Coach Lombardi would love to have done a lot of the things Max was doing but he knew better. <laughs> I got you. I think you're correct, sir. Okay, so uh, when you won the game, was it sort of uh, just a relief more than a celebration, or how did you feel? Well, I, I felt bad because I left the game with an injury. I had played every game that year without missing a play. Oh. And um, I had rolled an ankle earlier, and um, it was heavily taped and, and uh, on a punt coverage. Uh, it got rolled up again. I simply could not push off of it. So Kenny Bowman came in, who had dislocated his shoulder. He was really—he he really should have been the starter that year, but he got—he dislocated his shoulder in the next to the last exhibition game, and had not played all year. And he went in the game and just played great. Um, but I didn't finish the game, so I felt bad about that. And that's just a selfish thing. But yeah, it was a relief. It was a relief to have won the game. And I'm I'm one of the guys that was on the team that did lose the game that you couldn't lose two years later in Super Bowl three. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in just one moment. I wanted to ask you about what do you remember about when Max got the first touchdown pass in Super Bowl history? And as he told me, he goes, "It was total luck. I was just trying to make sure that the defender didn't didn't intercept the ball, and all of a sudden it's in one hand. I spin around and I'm gone." Well. I had a special interest in that because I had missed my pickup on a blitz Uh-oh. and Bart got ear hold. The Bart got, I mean, smashed by E.J. Holland on the play. Right. And probably shouldn't have gotten the pass off at all, which was, and it was all my fault. And I was in such horror. Uh, and then I heard this roar and I didn't know until I saw the films that Max had tipped the ball. It was it was a uh, real bad throw, but well behind him. And like you said, he's tipping it to keep the DB from intercepting, and he tips it right into his own hands. Um, or he just maybe maybe the other, the one he tipped was in the end zone. But anyhow, he reached back and pulled it in. Yeah, exactly. Most improbable one-handed catch. But Max, people forget, and he didn't play much that year because we had Carol Dale and Boyd Dowler. But Max was a I mean, incredible athlete. 
just a great athlete. Um, and he showed it that day because uh, Boyd had to go out with an injury too. Yeah, just some great memories from Super Bowl one, and I guess not so great memories from Super Bowl three. Uh, how about the expectations when you're with the Baltimore Colts and they're one of the biggest favorites of all time for a championship game and it just doesn't happen thanks to Mr. Namath and company? Well, it was um, next to um, real tragedy, personal tragedy. It was the closest thing to death uh, that you can experience because uh, there was this wrath of the NFL for losing to those guys. Uh, there was the fact that we averaged that Tom Natty still is the leading yards per carry rusher in any Super Bowl ever. We averaged 11 yards a carry wow. with our tailback, Tom Natty, but we turned the ball over and we missed field goals. And uh, Joe uh, played a virtually flawless game. I missed um, uh, our defensive back with the best hands, Jerry Logan, dropped a sure uh, interception, a sure touchdown interception. And, uh, our offensive line grades in that game were the highest of the year. There were no sacks on our quarterback, but Earl Morrill, our great quarterback, um, had his worst day. So, I mean, things came together. The Jets played really well. Matt Snell was great. Uh, Joe was great. Uh, and they did what they had to do to control the game and win it. And when I go back and read the play-by-play, -play, it could have been worse. If they wanted to pour it on in the fourth quarter, they probably could have. So um, the sad thing about that is the Baltimore Colts of 1967 and 68, um, going into that game, we had lost two games in two years. Wow. And then we lost that game. And so we were like 26-3. and three, And the only thing anybody remembers is that we lost the game that you couldn't lose. And that's embarrassing. When you get to the big game, you better win it, pal, because that's the only thing you're going to remember. Was there overconfidence in the room, and how did you guys look at uh, that guarantee statement from Joe Namath? No, there was no overconfidence. We knew they were good. We didn't, we, we didn't, and we didn't pay any attention to his statement. I think he, he took Joe's a good friend of mine because we, we got to be buddies in the senior bowl. Nice. Um, he told me later his teammates were upset <laughs> that he had, and he didn't even mean to do that. Some drunks yelling at him, we're going to kill you guys. And Joe said, I lost my temper. He said, wait a minute, we're going to win the game. I guarantee it. Right. Um, now, whether he's changed his story for a few years, I don't know. But um, <laughs> when when I was coaching in Alabama, we had him come to dinner, and my wife had, had thought she would not like him, and she fell in love with him like all females do. Um, <laughs> He's just, he's just a great guy, and so you had to be happy for him. Um, but um, And I think we beat him the next four times we played him, but nobody cares about that. Nobody wants to hear that, nor should they. Um, you get to the big game, you do what you have to do to win it, and you're the champ, and that's what they did. But this wasn't just a loss. This was the first time a loss to an AFL team. I guess it was right. embarrassment, right? Yes, it was. It was incredibly embarrassing and which detracted from the Jets' accomplishment, and that's a shame. Um, it was treated as if it was. I mean, we had, I pulled Tom Maddy off of guys in Baltimore who would walk up to us at a cocktail party and say, How much did you get? How much wow. did you guys get paid? Uh, and uh, I had to 
saved one guy's life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I had to get Maddie out of the room. That's brutal. Well, still, but the opportunity to play for Don Shula, to win a title there, and to play in what you played in uh, four championship games and won three. Is that correct? That's right. Um, our rookie year, we were uh, world champions, played the Browns in Green Bay. That was before the interleague thing started. And then the next, and then um, I had the privilege of being in Super Bowls one, three, and five. And uh, naturally, I thought it would go on forever. Um, Okay, every odd number Super Bowl, I guess I'll get to play. Uh, but it, it turns out that number five was my last hurrah. Give me your favorite Johnny U story. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that could take an hour. <laughs> well, I, no, I, actually, it won't. Here's my favorite Johnny U story. If you want to summarize him, first of all, uh, when we took the field, you know, when we were in the stadium. Freddie Miller, our defensive captain, would give an impassioned pitch for all of us to suck it up, get ready, go out and play great football. And he would turn to our offensive captain, Unitas, who's standing over by the door, uh, going up that long hallway out of the dugout, the Orioles dugout, onto Mm -hmm. Memorial Stadium. And he'd say, okay, John, you want to say something? And and, uh, John would look around the room and get eye contact with everybody. He'd say, talk's cheap. Let's go play every single Sunday. And we'd come bolting out of there ready to kill. Uh, we would follow him anywhere. And um, I want the, the one particular occasion that uh, sticks in my mind the most, we're playing the Bears, and Butkus is in his heyday, and he's knocking the ball loose, and they're recovering fumbles and picking off passes. And we're down... Uh, either 17 or 20 to nothing after about five minutes of play. Wow. And uh, they're, they're just killing us. And so every time we run off the field, and United would throw another interception, um, of course we would look at him to see if he was okay. But he never changed expression. And I remember somebody saying to me, does he realize what's going on? I mean, <laughs> nothing bothers him. And he would just come around and say, okay, you guys uh, – can you block? Can you? Uh, can you? Do you need a draw? Should we? Should we run a screen? It just as if nothing unusual was going on. And um, finally, somebody said, "What's wrong with him? Doesn't he realize that we're getting killed here?" And he just ran back out on the field as if nothing. You know, it was just another day at the office. And uh, and then on the last play of the game, he hits John Mackey on the eighty yard touchdown to win the game 21 to 20 wow <laughs> and i swear i swear as he jogs off the field he still doesn't change expression same guy every <laughs> single play his entire career and that i think was the key to his greatness a man of few words but just go out and win baby right yep that's exactly right wow that's fascinating how about uh, the opportunity to play I guess you didn't play a lot because I, uh, I, what I recall, you were hurt. But your last year was here in Los Angeles with the Rams, huh? It was like a dream, um, a pleasant dream. It, um, we had had a brutal uh, experience trying to trying to have a strike, and we had been crushed in the strike. And I had reported to my team the the Houston Oilers. By this time, I had been traded to Houston. I had. Had, uh, had and 
God blessing Merlin Olson, one of my best friends, had absolutely destroyed my left knee the year before in Houston in the, in the Astrodome. He didn't mean to. I was trying to block him. And, uh, <clears throat> Freddie Grier, another great friend of mine, had stumbled and they fell into my knee and it just exploded. So wow. I was coming off that and it was it was healing okay, uh, but I had been waved through the league like all presidents of the NFL Players Association. <laughs> yes. and John Mackey, we all got waved through the league. Right. But, um, and I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And the phone rang. It was it was this wonderful guy, Carol Rosenblum, who was my owner. And Mr. Rosenblum, um, if you ever produced for him, he would never forget you. Your owner in Baltimore. Yep. Yep. And he had he had swapped the Colts and ended up uh, owning the Rams, obviously. And he and he said, Bill, I'm going to put Don Klosterman on the line. Would like you to come out. Uh, we need a backup center, and uh, you can help us with long snapping if you'd like to do it. And I said, <laughs> I said the same thing I said to Don Shula years before. I'll be there tomorrow. Even it's a longer uh, walk. <laughs> yeah, a little bit longer, but I would I would have walked there too. <laughs> so we got a little apartment in Huntington Beach and had the privilege of playing on a great football team. Oh my gosh, that's that that's a team that should have won the Super Bowl. Uh, and I started listing the, the people. I mean, Jack Youngblood, Merlin Olson, Larry Brooks, uh, good gosh, Hexall uh, Reynolds, my roommate. You're talking about some fascinating personalities. You got Freddie Dreyer and Hexall Reynolds on the same <laughs> team, and, and Isaiah Robertson. Oh my gosh, we and it was it was never a dull moment. But you're in California, and so and I, my kids were little, so. We'd finish practice at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd go home. We'd go to the beach, down at Huntington Beach. And it was it was like a dream. Then we'd go play Sunday, and we always won. So um, we lost by one in Minnesota uh, in the playoffs. Uh-huh. Otherwise, that I think that team would have won the Super Bowl. So it's nice to know you enjoyed your stay in L.A. Oh, we loved We loved L.A. Everything except uh, getting on the freeway. It's even worse than it. <laughs> It's even worse than Atlanta, I swear. <laughs> I yeah. know that's that's a that's a lot to say, but I think it is. You've been here in the last twenty years. <laughs> uh, well, I've been there a lot. Yeah. Really Good. Have. Well, then you know how bad it is. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's it's only uh, it's only crowded, it's Bill, because the whole world wants to live here because of the weather. That's yeah. the only reason. That's right. That's right. And uh, never rains, and you never have fire in L.A. Right. Sure. <laughs> and and there's never a Monday either. <laughs> but something happened that year that I, that I really need to tell about that team. Please. No other team ever did anything like this. And uh, with my having been president of the association and having the indignity of being waved through the league, uh, the guys really rallied around us. And Merlin or somebody asked about, well, when's your anniversary? Uh, anniversary is December 15th. So we played the Redskins in a playoff game. And um, I thought everybody was uh, behaving strangely in the locker room after the game. We won the game, naturally. And then somebody said, well, we need you to come up to the parking lot for a minute walk over to uh, Jack Youngblood's car, whoever it was. And they opened the trunk, and it was a big cake. Happy anniversary, Bill and Carol. Nice. And then they said, we're going to take you to dinner, and we're going to celebrate. And it was just uh, it was being welcomed by 
a wonderful group of human beings when we had been the enemies for, for 10 years. Yep. Uh, it really was, really was a really special moment with uh, wonderful teammates. Was that with George Allen? No. Uh, that was that was with Chuck Knox. Chuck Knox, okay. George, yeah. yeah, George was going all the great. Yeah, out of all the great coaches I had, I mean, Chuck Chuck was the best orator. And when I say orator, I don't mean just making fancy speeches. I mean saying the right thing before the game, knowing how to how to sort of get a bunch of veteran. I mean, he had a bunch of hard nosed, really tough veterans. Joe Shabelli and Charlie Cowan and Tom Mack. I mean, Kenny Iman. Gosh, those guys didn't play. They were great. They didn't play in a long time. He knew exactly what to say to them without overdoing it. And I was just really impressed with him. That was another aspect of that experience. Never forget uh, his nickname, Ground Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he could shake you up, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't know how much he would appreciate the game today if he was Ground Chuck then. There's a little bit more passing going on. Well, Ground Chuck, you know, if, if, if you got the backs we had, McCutcheon and Bertelson and those guys, yep. you'd be stupid. And, and that offensive line would be stupid not to run it a lot. But then we could raise up and throw it to Jack Snow and, uh, and Harold Jackson. And that worked out pretty well, too. Well, Coach Curry, uh, you're a member of the Georgia Hall of Fame, uh, Sports Hall of Fame, and I've always wondered why only three years in Alabama? There must have been some kind of politics going on then. Well, Georgia Tech and Alabama had had a uh, severe falling out in the early 60s. And um, I think Dr. Joab Thomas, the president of Alabama, um, underestimated that, and so did I. Uh, There was a a lot of resistance to my being the coach there, a lot, Um, as in death threats when we first went there. In fact, our minister called the house and my Carolyn answer, and he's a wonderful guy named Bill Floyd. <laughs> he's really clever. He said, Carolyn, you okay? I'm hearing about these death threats. She said, oh, yeah, we're okay, Bill. Don't worry about it. Over here, you know, football is like religion. He said, oh, no, honey, it's a lot more important than that. <laughs> wow, that's pretty well, scary. There, there, was, there was resistance, and then uh, after we won the SEC and failed to beat Auburn and and failed to finish the job. We really had we had we played our very best. We we could have won the national championship that year, but we lost in the Sugar Bowl to Miami. Um, after that, it became clear to me that as long as we stayed there, and I loved the team and I loved coaching, and I told them they would win the national championship, and they did two years later. But uh, it just wasn't a good situation for our family, and so we we had to move on. And we did it. We moved on under our own steam. But I've uh, got a lot of friends in Tuscaloosa. We've been back many times. Even this year, we went back to a reunion of that SEC championship team uh, on September 7th this year. So uh, no hard feelings. It's just one of those things that happened. Did I read it correctly, though, that you were national coach of the year and then you left? Yep. That's unusual timing. You could, well, everything about it was unusual. And um, rather than to, uh, I'd rather not get into a lot of details, but sure. my scholarly wife uh, <laughs> just found it uh, untenable to um, to those circumstances. And um, and our 
our children. Um, we, we just felt like it'd be better for us to uh, to make a change. I'm wondering what Bart Starr thought about all this, because obviously he had something to do with uh, your connection to Alabama at the start, right? Well, Bart, Bart was uh, angry and embarrassed, but it, it wasn't his call. And uh, we had had a very dramatic experience, which is another testimony to the kind of people Bart and Cherry were, because they had lost their younger son, uh -huh. Brett, to, to drugs in 1988. And when I asked, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to, when we recover sufficiently, we're going to go around and try to keep this from happening to other young people. And I said, would you speak to our Alabama team? And this is in 1988. He said, um, let me think about it. And, and when, we, when we think we can manage it, if we do, I'll call you. Well, in about six months, he called me. And um, he said, we're ready. And I said, you want to talk to the team? He said, we want to talk to the team. I couldn't believe it. Um, I called a team meeting, and Bart and Cherry walk in, and I look at her and I said, I can't believe you're doing this. And she said, I can't either, hmm. but I'm going to. She stood up first and talked to our team about the sanctity of life and how important each of them was. And then Bart stood up and talked about the streets and the stuff he had learned in the NFL. And I guarantee you, lives were saved that day. So, yes, they had, and, and by the way, when they finished talking to our squad, you got 105 guys sitting in there, a lot of them are teenagers, mm -hmm. and Bart says to them, if you ever need us, he said, you've got great resources here on campus if you've got a problem like our son had. Um, but if you need us, our number's in the phone book. You call us, and we'll come to you. And I looked it up, and it was there. Wow. That That is the testimony as to who they were and are that is really special fantastic uh so yes bart had an investment there <laughs> no doubt and, and i'm sure just the fact that uh his name was all over that because you guys worked together at green bay and uh i guess that started your coaching career too right it's bart star bart bart's the kind of guy who would uh after we left um green bay and then there's an oddity, and my wife jokes about me thinking that it's because of me, but I played in five games of Packers versus the Colts when I was with the Packers. And that was in two years. Yep. Over the next, the rest of my career, I played in four more games, Colts versus the Packers. <laughs> and my team won all nine of those games. Oh, wow. <laughs> so even though uh, Bart... And was having trouble with the Colts, and I was on the Colts. Anytime he would come to Atlanta, he would we'd go to dinner, and he'd say, "If I ever get a big job, I'm going to hire you." And a lot of people say stuff like that in your business and my business, right? Yep. Well, he did it, and wow. if he had not hired me to come to the Green Bay Packers, I would have never been a head coach anywhere. I believe it was uh, it was a great act of faith from from somebody who believed in somebody else because uh, I had one year of experience and he made me the offensive line coach. And, and then three years later, Georgia Tech brought me back as head coach. And uh, it just wouldn't have happened without Bart Stone. 
That's just wonderful, and uh, no surprise, because that's the way Bart was always with anybody, even people he didn't even know. He was just amazing. I never saw him pass anybody, whether it was a child uh, asking him to sign a little piece of paper, or there was a belligerent drunk that was making a fool of himself. Bart would stop and be polite and say hello and, and sign something and leave the guy standing there dumbfounded. It was amazing. Uh, I never have acquired that gift, and I, I wish I could. Well, it's not easy. And I could tell you from a personal standpoint, I contacted Bart in 2004 by a letter just to let him know that I was writing a book. We had spoken on the phone a few times, always wanted to meet him. He was my boyhood idol from a football standpoint. And I didn't get a chance to meet him until 2014 when I covered the Masters. And I said, he always said, look, if uh, you ever want to come over to Birmingham, we'll have lunch. And I said, I'm in Augusta, Georgia. Is that close enough? He says, do you want to drive here? We're having lunch. And that's exactly what happened. Great. Well, what a wonderful story. Yep. And that, that's who he was, and um, people like that make all the difference in the world. Um, and in this divisive time that we live in, Bart was a uniter. Bart was a guy who kept his word. He's a guy who took responsibility. Um, he's a guy who cared about other people first, and those are the attributes of real leaders. Absolutely. And by the way, Bart, from that 2004 first contact about the thought of a book, which I wasn't writing yet, uh, he posthumously has endorsed the back cover of my book, too. How's that? Wow. Well, I, uh, you're talking about my big brother, so nothing surprises me that he has done. Bill Curry, I want to wrap this up talking a little bit about your speaking career. And uh, I've watched some things online. You are just I could watch you all day long because I love your passion. To me, it's all about passion. Uh, talk about how you got started with that and what that means to you now because you are spreading the gospel of just good life to everybody, the lack of division, which is so important now. Well, the way it started is my greatest fear is public speaking, and I had a public speaking course at Georgia Tech when I was 19 years old. Beautiful. I could not... I could not stand up in front of that class and introduce myself without my knees shaking so badly and my voice quivering. And I, I was in desperate need of a B. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to Georgia Tech, you need some decent. I just had to have a grade. And I thought, well, this will be an easy course. And it turns out to be one of the hardest things I had ever done because I was terrified of public speaking. And the prof was nice, and he tried to help me with my outlines and such, and I would stand up there, and sure enough, I would forget the, forget the items that I was supposed to cover. And one day, I'm walking up, scared to death again, and I just threw the notes in the garbage and walked in the class. And we had four or five profs on campus, and to be kind, uh, let's just say that they were uh, unusual in okay. their personal habits. Right. And they had funny accents, or they had stopped up noses, or something, and I had learned to mimic all of them, and when I started doing those puffs, the class went crazy, slapping their knees, falling out of the chairs, laughing, and I've been telling stories ever since. That's what I do. Uh, I saw Dr. Comer, my professor, a year or two later, we were on a football trip, and Coach Dodd wisely took some props with us and we were at a buffet. I said, Dr. Comer, 
I can't tell you how much I needed that A you gave me. It was wonderful. <laughs> but I really didn't think I deserved it. He said, of course you didn't. You didn't deserve an A. But how could I not give you an A after that marvelous speech you gave about all those stupid professors on campus? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is so great. By the way, that's how it started. That's great, Coach. And and you, you need to know that in my book, Touching Greatness, I write a little thing about the importance of everybody taking a speech class or a, a public speaking, whatever, just to get over it. Because forget what profession you're in; it's going to help you for the rest of your life. It's you're exactly right. That's a, that's wonderful advice. Uh, I hope I hope people will take it uh, take it to heart. Absolutely. And again, what is it that has gotten you going now in the last couple of years as far as talking to people about basically togetherness and forget this divisiveness? Well, we have a um, political situation. Yes, we do. <laughs> which speaks loudly uh, and crudely about uh, how awful other people are. And what I want to do when I stand up in front of an audience is to convince every person in the room of her or his importance. You are incredibly gifted. And when we take our gifts and we combine them, when we reach across all those barriers and join hands, then our capacity to do great things is not increased arithmetically. It's not increased geometrically. It's increased exponentially, and it happens in a heartbeat. And when we do that, even though this is a small crowd, this is only a couple of thousand people, when we do that, we can change the world, and we have to right now. Great words. Fantastic. Coach, I really appreciate the time. It's, uh, it's a joy to speak with you. Well, it's wonderful to be on with you, Ted, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Thanks again to Coach Bill Curry for joining us here on the Believe Podcast Network. Until next time, I am still Ted Sobel, and thank you for listening to Touching Greatness. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.